Cinema Duel, a podcast where myself, John, and my friend Chris talk about a couple of movies around the theme of our choosing. Chris, how are you hanging in there today, buddy? I'm doing okay, John. How are you? I am, all things considered, doing okay. Um, just a quick programming note. Uh, you'll hear this uh, probably in about April or so, and we are recording this uh, in March, which is sort of at what we think at the time is the sort of the peak of the COVID-19 quarantine stuff. Uh, I will feel very silly, of course, if uh, things get disastrously worse in the next month uh, since we record this. But uh, we'll try not to let that get us down too much. Um, but, you know, it's <laughs> it's the lives we're living right now. <laughs> Probably safe to just reinforce before we even get started. Please make sure you are uh, isolating and social distancing yourself, wash your hands, be safe, be smart, uh, and uh, watch. take the time to watch some great movies if you're able to, which is kind of what we did. I will note that uh, uh, I, I picked the theme, and uh, the theme that we're going to talk about uh, in this episode is Agnes Varda, the works of Agnes Varda, one of the, the premier um Auteurs of the French New Wave, uh, although she's known for so much more than that. Uh, at the time when we picked it, <laughs> the world wasn't quite this in the uh, frame that it is now. Uh, so uh, this is a little bit heavier fare than probably uh, you need to hear right now. But uh, there, there's there's a lot to talk about, a lot of good stuff to come out of it. And uh uh, I'm still really uh, raring to go, John. So um, well, I know we're starting with your film first, but before we dive into it, maybe we should talk a little bit about uh, your experience with Varda prior to coming into the episode. Really, my experience with Varda was mostly limited to uh, having heard of her passing, I believe it was last year. Um, and I think it was yourself that uh, mentioned, uh, uh, I think it was Cleo 5 to 7, Uh and so I watched that movie, and while I had, in like looking up some articles on her passing, that movie came up a lot. Uh, I recognize that people seem to like it. And at the time, a casual viewing of that movie didn't quite illuminate itself to me. Um, but when you mentioned that uh, Varda, or you wanted to talk about Varda, I kind of dove whole hog into everything that was on the Criterion channel for Varda and they have a lot of her movies there um not like her career stretches back to like the 50s I think so it uh um she was very prolific and it couldn't uh encompass everything but I think other than like maybe one or two films that they have I watched the vast majority that they have there um and I will say that there's definitely some moments that are challenging for sure. Um, and my, ch uh, my choice for today's conversation, uh, probably one of the most, uh, challenging, uh, ones, but the experience of watching so many Varda movies was, I'd say overall incredibly pleasant, um, and uplifting. And if anyone had the inclination to do so, I would, I would highly recommend it. And a note, uh, on Chris's, uh, comment about a uh, heavier fare uh definitely stick with us through the second movie uh, we're talking about today because if the first movie is really hard to get through from especially a current topical perspective the second movie is one of the most like heartwarming uplifting movies i've ever seen so that one's definitely worth staying for how about yourself chris yeah, so uh, it's interesting because this was mine, uh, my pick. And the reason that I wanted to pick it was um, Varda was always someone that I had heard about, certainly in reference to the French New Wave, certainly in, in reference to a lot of the work she did uh, when she came to America. The fact that she was married to Jacques Demy, uh, who's probably someone we have to talk about and do at some point as well, um, another brilliant filmmaker. Um uh, so she was someone on my list of um, auteurs and directors that I need to get more familiar with. So I wanted to take this opportunity for the episode to do that. Um, and then, of course, as everything kind of slowly uh, crumbled uh, into rubble uh, around us with the coronavirus, COVID-19 and, and everything else, um, 
it was hard to do that. So the great thing about it is I got to, um, my, my experience like yours, I had only seen Cleo from five to seven. That was the only film I was familiar with. Um, uh, and, and now the, the two films that we're going to talk about, one of which I had been dying to see just based on the reviews and what I had known about it. Um, and with, with that, having now seen that, my, my, my appetite is still just as ravenous to really dive deeper into her work. It's just something that I'm probably going to do at a later <laughs> point uh, in, in time. But uh, that, that being said, the two that we talked about, I, I think there's a, a lot to discuss. I, I definitely think based on what I've read uh, about her other films... Um, there's a lot of ties and similarities and touch points that kind of touch on things that she's always been fascinated by. Um, so why don't we just kind of just do away with the rest of this and let's jump into the first film, John. Sounds good. First and uh, ominously foreshadowed movie uh, for the evening is 1985's Vagabond. Uh, the French title is Sans Toi Ni Loi, which translates to not, With Neither Shelter Nor Law. This is a quote-unquote uh, fictional movie um, that uh, documents the last few uh, weeks in the life of a young drifter named Mona. I think our second choice we had locked in pretty quickly, um, and I had hoped in wanting to come up with something that would be distinct and different, um, cho- decided to pick one of her fiction films um, instead of one of her documentaries. In actually like s- like soaking myself in this movie, watching it a couple of times, doing some doing some. Uh, reading, uh, it occurred to me how much of this movie is, in fact, um, not really scripted. Um, and in fact, uh, it's kind of half structured like a documentary. Um, even if some of the, th- and in some cases, uh, even if it is fictionalized, uh, some moments are actually just things that just happened to them while they were filming um that they thought would be a good ent- a good addition to the movie so um something that's interesting to me as i think about this movie is the distinction between sort of reality and fiction and how those lines often get blurred in varda's work thoughts yeah no that was exactly what i wanted to kind of point out it's interesting that you framed this as um you wanted to pick a fictional movie because the other one we picked is ostensibly a documentary, but um, the line with Varda blurs a lot. And one of the things I loved about this film, especially in relation to the other one we're going to talk about, is this is very much a fictional narrative that uses a lot of the tools and structure and and kind of framing of a documentary. And at the same time, because so much of it is unscripted, um, it plays with that very that very idea of what is real and what is not within the film, which is interesting because the second film we'll talk about is a documentary, but it also very much plays with narrative and is structured in such a way that as... Um, unscripted as it may be, they take those unscripted elements and with it, they craft a narrative and an arc uh, that is very much a conscious decision. There's a lot of imagery that we'll talk about too, especially when we talk about the other film, but to bring it back to Vagabond, that was one of the, one of the things that I loved so much about the movie is just how it really plays with, it plays with time. It plays with, um, the the elements of doc- documentary to really tell a story of a young woman. Uh, you'll talk about the plot, but it's to, uh, uh, essentially this is about a young woman who is found dead at the beginning of the film and the arc that kind of brings her to that moment. So it starts in the present, flashes back, and then brings us back again. But the way that it tells the story is is not simple at all. It dovetails. There are interconnected characters that come backwards and forwards and eventually you realize that 
there is no neat ending to this. Um, so much of what strikes me about Vagabond is, is how much of it is reflected in the eyes of the watcher, not only the watcher, you know, us, but the, the people who are interviewed about Mona uh, over the course of the film. It is very much a film about perception. And it's very much a film about social norms and what happens when you buck those social norms. And, and it is very much a film about gender and it is very much a film about so many things. And the fact that Varda is able to play with those things so effortlessly um, as difficult as a film as this may be to watch uh, at times because of the content because of what's happening uh, it's it's breathtaking it it is it is so rightfully revered um, I think this won uh, the top award at the Venice Film Festival of the year that it came out and it is it is a striking uh, film uh, by by Varda um, that's kind of my my immediate take on it, John. I don't know if I took a lot of your no. uh, thunder away from it, from my uh, revelry of it, but uh, why don't you just do a really quick uh, summary of, of what's going on and then we, we can kind of take it from there. For sure. And I mean, a lot of the stuff you've just talked about, is, it lines up very well with sort of my response to the movie as well. So um, once again, uh, just just happy to talk to you and that we seem to seem to come at these movies often very similarly um the plot of vagabond very generally speaking is that the the scene does sort of open the movie opens on a a vineyard worker who comes across a frozen corpse um who we will come to know as mona um and she has frozen to death in the field and the police are called. They, um, they sort of do ask some preliminary questions of the people who are in the vineyard and very quickly decide, well, this is a natural death. She just froze. She, you know, she's lying down. She froze to death. Natural causes their interest in figuring out who this person is sort of ends very quickly, which in and of itself I think is uh, that is, is is interesting in terms of trying to figure out what the ideas and themes, the politics of this movie are. Um, but once the police officers uh, sort of make their very brief and uninterested conclusions, um, Agnes Varda uh, herself uh, n- starts narrating um, saying that, she wants to know who Mona is. She's curious about if the police, like the implication being that if the police officers aren't interested in picking up the threads of figuring out who this person was, that she is interested and she would like to reach out to people and talk to people to find out who Mona was. And so the movie is sort of these series of vignettes of episodes in uh, Mona's, the last few weeks of her life uh, intercut with um, sometimes it's direct interviews with the characters that she's interacting with and they're reflecting on their experience with her. Uh, sometimes it's conversations between two characters that basically f- provide the same function. Um, there's, it, there's one character actually who even like after she does a scene with a character in the movie, like they're, they're not in the interview mode. She just turns to the camera and starts monologuing. Um, and so there's different, like, it's not always consistent. And I, and I think that's actually like interesting, but like largely the characters in the movie are themselves offering up sort of their response and reflection to this person who she is our protagonist, but she refuses any sort of characterization or backstory or like, um, anytime someone tries to come up with something to explain her, she basically refuses it. The challenge of this movie is not just that you're focused on her and her situation, but that she doesn't give you any sort of easy way out to understand who she is, why does she do the things that she do does. And so all of the people who are giving their interviews throughout the course of the movie talking about what they think of her it's it's more revealing about the people themselves um, than it is about than it is about Mona. And then similarly, yeah. us as the viewer, we are 
watching the movie and we're trying to figure that out ourselves. Um, and you would think that anything that I would talk about, about what I think this movie is trying to say probably just has to say more about me, um, than it would about the character of Mona. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what this movie is saying that anything that we put upon her is simply a reflection of ourselves. And the movie demonstrates that again and again with those interviews. Um, you touched on something in, in, in the beginning that I forgot about, but it, it comes flashing back and that's that narration. Um, it's really only in the beginning. I, I don't recall it ever coming back, but um, it's, it's, it, it, it feels to me as someone who has only seen now three films by Varda, um, it seems to me to be indicative of um, a common theme in her work, which is she is, um, she is never removed from the content of what she is filming. She is always directly involved, whether she's injecting herself because it's a documentary about herself or whether she's narrating it because she's, she's, she's genuinely interested in the way that a film that she herself has shaped, uh, cause she wrote this in addition to directing it to, to the extent that it is written. Um, she's injecting herself because she is genuinely cur- curious as to the, the direction that this narrative is going to take. Um, and it's, and it's fascinating there are so many little moments in this film where, if I had seen this as a younger person, I would have maybe had a different response. Uh, there's a whole section where she meets up with a, a family, uh, um, a husband, a wife, and two young children who are um, goat herders. The husband had traveled and had been kind of a vagabond himself and is was a philosophy um, major and has now kind of taken on this farm life. And the family actually gives her a place to stay. They give her a camper and heating equipment and they give her a plot of land because she mentioned she wants to farm potatoes. Um, and once she's given all that stuff, she does absolutely nothing with it. And the, the family kind of um, gets angry and distraught and eventually kicks her out. And, and it's, it's interesting to watch that as a younger person, it, it would hard to, it would be hard to find my sympathies with Mona in that moment. But as you watch, watching it now as an older person and, and, and kind of seeing, uh, the system and people break the system and conform to the system and, and just being a part of the system and, and feeling the weight of that, uh, you know, as a person closer to 50 than 40 or closer to, you know, than I was at her age, maybe in her young twenties. Um, it's, there's a there's a sympathy there, and and part of that is the astounding performance of, I'm going to butcher the name, but Sandrine Bonnier, uh, as 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 Mona, uh, her performance is so powerful. The way that Varda directs her is so powerful. The way that she just lets her kind of breathe this life, um, it's incredible. You see that time and time again with her interactions with people where. There are moments of warmth. There are moments of debauchery. There are moments of just uncaring feeling. And all of that paints this emotionally rich tapestry of this woman's life that is fascinating to watch from the beginning to the end. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm actually glad you mentioned the uh, the goat farmers because that was, uh, I think for me, well, well, I'm not like, well, I'm not anti-Mona in this movie. Um, I think when I was watching it last night, uh, the second time, I was struck by the, uh, I was struck by the goat farmer's response um, to the whole situation, um, partially uh, be- because like there are like the the range of reactions to Mona in the film go from uh, people who actively abuse her um, to people to rich people who think they're doing something nice by condescending to her and helping and sort of that sort of you know we'll help you because we're superior kind of thing but there are people who seem to genuinely be in a bad way but can help her and are offering her like the goat farmers offer her like when she says to the goat farmers that she wants to farm potatoes they say well we have some land you can go farm potatoes you will have that land like that's that's not a that's not a meaningless or condescending gesture. I don't think from them. Uh, and, 
and when she uh refuses to work it um his response is largely like you're by not working you're essentially proving the system right uh that you claim to be rejecting but you're ultimately confirming what they do and i mean the movie starts with her having fallen down and dying in a ditch so there there's it's hard for me to uh pull away from the goat farmer's perspective on that although yeah so you know it's the thing that i pulled from that was if this is if, if this is the story of a woman who is just does not want to deal with the structure imposed upon her. The the thing that I, I at least for me, kind of reconciled the interaction with the goat farmer was, um, despite the generosity, he's he's just instilling another set of structures upon her. It is just not what she wants. And there's something to be said for, you know, I'll... Uh, I, I'm going to be gracious and give you this plot of land and give you this thing. But, you know, by doing that, I expect you to now adhere to my structure. Um, and the fact that she does not want to do that is what frustrates the guy so much. Uh, but he doesn't see that that is exactly the thing that she is trying to kind of move away from. I kind of the second time watching it again kind of took that as if, if this is what she is trying to do. You know, the, the, the act should be the act, but in essence, even the goat farmer, as altruistic as he may seem, there's a catch to the generosity. The gener- the catch is you now must adhere to the structure that I am imposing upon you by giving you this land, uh, which is not what she's looking to do. Uh, she has opportunities time and time again to kind of fall into these pathways, uh, even when they're horrible pathways. There's toward the end when she's kind of at her... At, at you know almost the lowest of her her low she falls in with a bunch of junkies and the one junkie is like hey you know uh, you're you're pretty pretty I, I can get you to pose and and do do some porn make a little bit of money uh and you know she's kind of titillated by that for a moment but then eventually kind of moves away from that as as, as well as, as the movie passes on uh it's interesting to kind of think about what Varda is saying with this character what um, Sandrine is is doing with this this character. Um, it, it I don't think there's a clear cut answer, and I think what that's why this movie holds up as well as it does. Nothing resolves. Um, there's no all of a sudden. Oh, it was because she was abused as a child, or oh, it was because she never got that toy. Uh, there's no answer. It's just a display of a life um to, at, at its end and you take away from it what you will well and i think that the like i think that by choosing to like set a movie about a drifter and one who happens to be a woman that that there's definitely like we talk about like you you're sort of what you think about this movie says more about you but like you can like by choosing to make a movie about this person and by choosing to have a character who is this sort of resistant to any sort of like, and there, and it's not even necessarily uniform either. Cause there are people that she gets along with um, the old woman, the, uh, oh, some, yeah. some of the, the old woman, that, that whole scene is fantastic. I love it. There's um, like, there, there are definitely people that she gets along with. Um, Let's take the scene with the old woman for an example. This movie does so much more than just kind of paint the observer as, you know, you are the witness of your own prejudices. It also it also speaks very cleanly, um, clearly to the prejudices that were going on at the time as well, particularly toward women. There's the whole scene with uh, she finally finds a sense of self. Uh, she meets a um, she meets an immigrant uh, farmer who is uh, clearing off the old uh, grape trees. Um, uh, Asun, I think his name is, or Asuna. Yeah. And uh, she finally, she starts to work. They have like some type of life together. Uh, but when all the other men come back from their vacation, they kick her out because she's a woman and she doesn't want to belong. The whole thing with the aunt, um, that wonderful scene where she gets drunk with this very old woman. And it comes to light that um, the old woman is the great aunt of a character we met earlier who is just hoping she becomes senile and can get moved out or die so that he can inherit the house with his young wife. 
Um, you, you, in the act of them getting drunk and then being found, uh, by the maid who turns out her in, in a crazy kind of Altman-esque, uh, series of events and characters, the maid's boyfriend robbed a castle, which causes the young boy who she met earlier, who was the student of a teacher that she had a friendship with earlier. It, it, it just causes this whole thing, but it really sets across these clear lines of this is what we think of class. This is what we think of um, the uh, waitstaff versus the elites. This is what we think of uh, women versus men. Uh, it, it, it paints all these other strokes that beyond what you set uh, upon the film as an observer, um, Varda is also clearly talking about class and gender struggles uh, in 1980s uh, France as as well. And I think also um, to use this to like uh, talk a bit about Varda herself as a filmmaker. Um, the fr- the reason I was I, I didn't do too much reading onto this, but. Uh, I, when I was looking at Varda's place in the French New Wave, which is something I'm admittedly not as familiar with, um, it seems that she seems to occupy a, a place of something of an outsider. Like she knows these people and she, you know, she's part of that scene, so to speak, but sort of peripherally almost. And, I th- and I've seen at least a couple of people say that her inclusion in the canon of French New Wave largely comes because her first movie, uh, La Pointe Court, um, does mm-hmm. a lot of things that the French New Wave did, but before New- French New Wave existed. So like when they yeah. realize, oh, wait a minute, Varda's already doing this. Well, I guess she has to be in it, right? And I th- that movie is interesting because I think she actually does a similar technique to what she does in this movie, which is she follows, there's a fictional th- thread, uh, a story of a couple that you follow, but then also it's also kind of half documentary where uh, the place where these people are having their struggles is a small town. And so she's just sort of like hanging out with people from the small town, just doing, you know, documenting their lives. And I think, uh, and again, it's blurring the, the reality fiction line. I think it also gets to what I think is Agnes Varda's biggest interest is people. Um, that brings up an interesting thing I wanted to talk about with regards to her filmmaking as well, because um, as much as she is very much into using the moment as the moment appears to her own devices, one of the things I found striking about Vagabond is her sense of framing. She was also very much um, a visual person as far as photography. She, she's taking beautiful pictures. That's going to play a huge role in our next film. And there are moments in Vagabond that are just striking in the way she moves the camera and she frames the environment. One of the most striking pieces um, in the film, uh, it's, it's, it's the moment that comes where she's being kicked out of the kind of commune where the... Uh, farm workers are. Uh, the men have come back from vacation. They don't want her there. Uh, she's down the stairs sitting on a um, bunch of, of crates and bags waiting for Asun to get her bag. He brings the bag down and someone throws her tent to the ground and she's wearing his scarf. And as she leaves to get into the car and driven off, she throws the scarf at him and he just kind of drops it on the bags and crates. They get into the car, the car drives away, but the camera stays. Instead of following the car, the camera just stays on those um, white sacks against the building and this bright red scarf that's just left there. This symbol of what has been lost. Um, It's an article of clothing. Clothing is so important in this film. One of the other amazing visual tricks that Varda does to kind of denote how much time has passed and the state of Mona as she goes through are those boots. These amazing kind of knee-high velvet boots. Um, And there's a moment in the film where it's another great thing that Varda does, she's following Mona as Mona is walking down the street. And then Mona stops, but the camera doesn't. The camera keeps going. And it, it, it goes around the corner and it just, it freezes on this kind of beautiful, messy pile of pallets. Uh, but you don't know where Mona went. And there's this moment of suspense of why is the camera focusing on this 
aesthetically kind of structured framing of these palettes and not Mona. And then the camera kind of pans back to Mona and she's got her leg hoisted against the wall and she found out that her boot uh, zipper is broken. And it's a key part because as the movie keeps going on and on, you see her boots get lower and lower and lower until by the end of the film, they're reversed and they're they're like red in inside in, in reverse and they're just floundering on the floor. And at the end of the movie, she's she's drunk and kind of discombobulated. Her pants are unbuckled as she's walking around. But the thing that you stick with and the thing that Varda focuses on is those boots and how those boots have started up high and fallen down to the bottom. Um, she is a wonder when it comes to imagery and when it comes to framing and and picking out small details that 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 just tell an entire story without any dialogue without any conversation um so and and some of those things are are so carefully composed even when it's spontaneous the way that she kind of composes these gorgeous shots it's astounding and it there's so much even if you don't want to think about all of the things that she wants to comment on visually the film is such a delight um that you can get things from it anyway I think that her training as a uh, as a photographer and the way that she frames her images and her interest in taking pictures is a great uh, segue point into our second movie for the evening. The but is the power of the imagination. But who is the idea? He, not me. I'm not firm on my feet. I find them too small. It's true that they look so small. It's true. C'est juste l'installation de l'échafaudage ah. qui est soumis à autorisation. Alors moi je vais vous dire quelque chose entre nous. Toutes les amendes, vous pouvez les envoyer à Agnès Varda. Our second movie for today's episode is the 2017 documentary Faces Places. It is I don't believe it's her final film, but is definitely among her final films before she passed. And uh, certainly her advanced age forms uh, one of the many threads throughout this movie. But Chris, this was your pick. And why don't you get us started? Thanks, John. Uh, yeah, Faces Places. So this was actually the trailer for the film was what got me wanting to uh, dive deeper into Varda and um kind of position this as an episode for the podcast. So 2017 documentary film. Um, but as we learned with Vagabond, uh, the way that Varda makes a documentary is not like how other people make a doc documentary. There are very much, there is very much a narrative vein and, um, uh, there's very much a narrative vein at play here and narrative elements that, that kind of weave its way in, to the film. Um, it's about a lot of things, but if I were to do a very quick synopsis of the film, it's about Varda uh, nearing the end of her life and her engagement with the French photographer J.R. Um, there, it's kind of a meeting of the minds. Uh, she's fascinated by him and his photography. One of the things that he does is um, he takes uh, pictures of people, pictures of, uh, body parts, and he plasters them up, huge prints, plasters them up on buildings and on trains and on, um, water towers. He, he is, uh, he is a photographer, but he's also an artist. And one of the things that's fascinating about his art is that it's not meant to last. The trains drive away, buildings are torn down. Um, and he is equally fascinated by her, fascinated by their by her films. So they decide to get together and see what they can do together. So the film becomes a bit of a road trip as they travel around France, finding subjects and finding places of interest where they can take pictures and they can post them up and and, and create art. So in in that in in. In that of itself, it's just kind of it kind of is positioned as a nice road film and a nice travelogue and a nice kind of meeting of the artistic minds and what is art. Uh, but what winds up happening as you go through the film is you start to get a real sense of the things that Varda is interested in. She's interested in uh, age and the end of life and and what happens at the end of your your life and your artistic career and how that juxtaposes against someone who is just starting to come up. Um, it deals with memory. It deals with the things that people, um, 
want to cling to and want to remember, even as the environment and society around wants to dismantle that and tear it down and 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 forget about it. Um, and as these two people come together, and as they create these incredible, striking even if transitory works of art, uh, you start to learn about what it is that um, each of them hold important about art, about love, about life. Um, and and y- you come away with this sense of just inescapable uh beauty for for what you can find around you uh and how your memories kind of color those things this is very much a film that takes memory and and imprints it on the world uh for other people to see and i would be remiss if i did not say that my first viewing of this uh literally brought me to tears it was one of those film experiences that you watch something and it immediately resonates within you and uh, you realize that, oh, this is going to be something that I am now going to kind of carry around with me forever. Uh, we had a similar, I at least I had a similar response when we did Amadeus. I was just uh, thinking of Amadeus. I was like, we, did, yeah. we just had another Amadeus on our hands. <laughs> yeah. And, and, I, and I think when I told you about this, you said those exact words. This to me is another Am- Amadeus. This this emotionally um, and artistically floored me. Uh, and I can't say too much else about it without kind of uh, bringing those emotions back up to the front. So why don't you talk about uh, your impression of the film and uh, your, your thoughts on it? It's comforting. And, and not in a easy platitudes kind of way. There's some heavy things that get talked about. And there's definitely like substance to the movie for sure. But... Um, whether you're talking about the relationship between uh, Varda and JR as it develops over the course of the movie and they tease each other about being old and about his pretentious not ever taking off his sunglasses, um, those threads that run through the movie or about, um, and then the, the stories that, uh, the stories of the people that they run into, they don't necessarily interconnect that the way that Vagabond does, but everyone has their own story everyone has their own life that they encounter briefly um you do get uh um whether and again agnes uh, varda herself will talk about how so much of her work is uh relies on her willingness to take risks and to take chances and just sort of put herself out there and see what happens without any sort of pre- understood uh sense of how things will go but that really aside from one aside from the notable conclusion of the film uh most of the times that pays off wonderfully um and as and sure they make decisions about like the narrative of the movie what stuff to include what stuff to to remove and stuff um and so you can make some uh you can see the traces of like uh her interest in uh, worker solidarity uh, when they're going to talk to the people at the factory, uh, when she does the um, the murals on the shipping containers of the wives of the people who are on strike, you can see her interest. Like this is sort of bring up her feminist threads again, um, but it's uh, but it is it does sort of all form. It, it's not a very didactic movie at all. Um, this is, uh, this is, this feels so much like so many threads just all weaving together to come up with something that's just profound and beautiful and sweet. And for for someone who made a movie so challenging and, and like, and those things show up a lot throughout her career, um, for her to make a movie like Faces Places that doesn't ignore those things, but comes up with something that is just like is so emotional it is it's astounding it's profound yeah and i want to um i want to talk about um one of the pieces you brought up um and it has to do with the way that she kind of mixes narrative into the documentary because there are definite moments that were conceived and filmed like a narrative um so let's talk about JR and his sunglasses that he never removes. 
the first thing that I, I thought about today, kind of coming back to it and prepping for the episode, was uh, their relationship in general. It, it reminds me very much in a way of the relationship with Mona and the old aunt in Vagabond, where there is just this... Um, at first, Mona is going to take advantage of her, but then realizes that this is a soul that she connects to, and they're able to kind of get drunk on brandy and have a laugh and be honest with each other. Um, the the relationship, the, the the amount of respect and love that Jr. has for Varda, and and the way that Varda views Jr. is is simply lovely. Um, and there is a through line about you know he's so young and hip, and throughout the sh- the movie, he never takes his sunglasses off. There's a brilliant opening. The, the movie opens with uh, different ways that they might have met, but they didn't actually meet. And all of them were kind of filmed uh, as a joke. But there's, uh, you know, uh, he, he went into the bakery to buy the last... Uh, some last pastry and they're like, Oh, it's all sold out. And he goes, Oh, and he leaves and it cuts to the side and Varda had bought the last pastry. And he goes, but we didn't meet that way. Uh, we may have met at a disco, but we didn't meet that way. And they film him going to a disco. He's a young, attractive guy, disco dancing. But then you look in the corner of the disco and Varda is dancing with a bunch of people. Um, it's, it's kind of beautiful. But then there is this striking thing about the sunglasses, and uh, she constantly teases him about it. You know, show me your eyes. The eyes are the window to the soul. And he goes, no, that's not what I do. I I keep the glasses on. Um, And there is a um, slight detour uh, halfway through the movie where she goes to get an eye exam because her eyes are failing. And, you know, for someone who is such a visual artist, to have your eyes start to fail you has to be devastating and the way that jr and her play with that and they 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 demonstrate via people holding up letters uh they try to approximate what it's like for her to see and they blur some of it out and they jiggle and they go up and down um it's kind of wonderful Uh, and then it gets to the end where you know brief spoiler warning but spoiler alert um, a whole thing happens <laughs> with that. Uh, I remember us talking about this after we watched it uh, with her trying to meet up with Godard, uh, who she had been friends with. They had been very distant. She tries to um, engage with him. Something kind of um, typically Godard happens uh, and it, it breaks her heart. Uh, and it, that is a real moment in the film. Uh, and it's devastating. But then the movie ends with a part that is 100% not authentic and 100% not naturalistic. But it's the only way that the film can end. Uh, and I think they are both very acutely aware of that. And I, I think rather than that be any type of a cheat to the film, it just displays the mastery of Varda to be able to weave narrative fictional and non-fictional elements together to create this wonderful portrait that you wouldn't get otherwise. Um, and the movie ends with her and Jr. at a park bench and him, <laughs> I'm going to just laugh and just, otherwise I'll just cry. Uh, and him taking off his glasses. And it's such a fucking great ending. Uh, even though they had to create it to get there. Uh, it's, it's just one of those moments that I will have in my head forever. <laughs> yeah, it, it is that, that moment where he takes off his glasses and he, you know, because of the way they shoot him, like, like he's looking directly into the camera, the, which the, is the, so it, masterful. Yeah. He takes off his glasses for her only for her. You as the viewer never see his eyes. Yeah. His, and I think that is the brilliant genius touch of that moment is that they keep it private, even though it is a movie that they want you to see, even though it's a moment they want you to experience. They have that quick wink of, I'm going to do it, but I'm only going to do it for her. And it's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's what film is. Yeah. That moment is what film is to me. It is. It's, and to, and again, as someone relative, like still, I, I still think of myself as a neophyte when it comes to uh, movie watching as a, as a thing that as a, as an interest, uh, but to be, but I like a hundred percent agree. Like that moment where he takes off his sunglasses and just for Varda, but not for the film audience is like one of the things I was most invested in, in any movie I've seen recently. Um, 
that simple gesture, I was like, oh, this is amazing. And the other thing that that moment does for me is it, it, it's a nice, to me, it also functions as a nice sort of the, the structure, the sort of, uh, set up nature of the whole thing where this is a manufactured moment in the same way that the opening is manufactured where all of the different ways that they didn't meet each other get filmed yeah it's it's definitely uh she's definitely adding some fiction to her uh uh adding to her fiction to her documentary as opposed to vagabond she's adding some documentary to her fiction I don't think we need to dwell on the on the Godard stuff too much, but I do want it to be said that like, well, at some point we will probably talk about Godard. But that was my introduction <laughs> to Godard was that fucking asshole who is mean to Agnes Varda. How dare you, sir? <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a terrible rotten moment. And uh, though there are some Godard films that I I truly love uh, with all my heart. Uh, we'll probably have to at some point do like a French New Wave and, and talk about something like Breathless, uh, Breathless or uh, Masculine Feminine, which are which are two great films of his. Uh, he is he, he he by <laughs> by dint of his omission in the film, he becomes the villain of the film and and sets up the beauty of the ending of the film. So, I mean, yeah. I don't know that it could have worked any better than it did because of how it happened. Um, and I think that's, that's, if I've come to learn anything with, with my, my brief exposure to, to Agnes Varda, or, um, we had this debate before the episode started, is it, it, it I, I'm sure it's actually pronounced Anya Savarda, but, uh, we're clumsy North Americans. So we'll, it's tr- it's we'll true. stick to Agnes for this. Yeah. Um, y- you know, th- that's, it, it if it's if it's one thing that I I've learned, it's it's just how many shades uh, of light are possible with her films. And uh, uh, a, again, if if this if this type of stuff is meant to do anything, it's just meant to expose us to more things and give us the opportunity to respond viscerally and emotionally to something. Uh, and I'm so happy that I had the opportunity to, to find another one of those, those treasures in Varda and in faces places. Absolutely. The, the takeaway from this episode, a hundred percent is watch faces places and then watch the rest of it, but definitely faces places. And we're going to roll into our, film recommendation segments uh which we do every episode uh i like generally speaking my recommendation is just watch everything varda that you can um but specifically i think that two that work well in the context of what we've been talking about today uh one is a movie called mur mur which is m-u-r space m-u-r-s um it is a documentary uh, that she shot in 1981 uh, in Los Angeles. There was a time that she was living in California. And this movie is about her being fascinated by murals that were being painted in uh, black and Latino communities. Um, And so she goes and basically interviews the people who are putting up these murals um, and to learn more about them and their situation. And you get a sense and and it, it functions she's not putting up the art herself like they do her and jr do in faces places but the the intersections of public art and the people who make that art uh, i think that would that thing that rings very similar similarly interesting um uh if you compare it to faces places although with it being an 81 it's obviously not her as a as an older lady um but that's definitely one and then the, the other one uh that is a sh- it's a short film uh that she made in 1968 uh just called Black Panthers. Uh she went to uh hang out with the Black Panthers while they were doing some uh some of their political uh action and demonstrations and such and just sort of if to me I I liked it because it was sort of a more direct um uh a more direct expression of sort of her interests politically. Um even though it's not about her, she's a you know a, a French woman. The fact that she would make a short film talking to the Black Panthers about their struggles was, uh, I just thought it was really cool. And uh, it's it's not particularly long, so it shouldn't be long to watch. 
Chris, how about yourself? Yeah, so I'm going to take a small detour uh, from Varda, although I'm going to take your recommendation and probably uh, take some time to dive into a lot more of her films, particularly her documentary documentaries. But uh, my recommendation is going to be for her husband. So I mentioned earlier that she was married to uh, the director Jacques Demy, uh, who has a number of incredible films. The one that I'm going to do is probably his most well-known, and that's The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, uh, 1964, uh, starring Catherine Deneuve. It is a musical. It's a romantic drama. Uh, but it's it's striking in the way that um, Demi uses color and uses melodrama kind of in the way that Douglas Sirk did in America, uh, although he's, he's talking about very different topics uh, with the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. But it, it's just a, it's a beautiful, pretty film. Um, and one of the things that I want to kind of dive into next is take a deeper look at his films and, and how they kind of mirror against Varda's films. Varda also did a documentary on uh, Jacques, Jacques Demy that I believe if you're a Criterion subscriber and you subscribe to the channel uh, is on the channel as well. But uh, uh, this is just kind of watching these films has kind of reignited my love for a lot of French cinema, and this is one that I've gone back to time and time again uh, just because of how beautiful it is. So uh, if you want to try something a little bit different, but in, in the, the same realm, this is very much kind of the MGM musical uh, version of something that the French New Wave would do. Uh, give this one a shot. Yeah, I think Demi is uh, definitely on my... Uh like at some point something i want to get to at some point i started watching that varda documentary about him and then after a few minutes i was like i should i probably should just watch his movies first and then go back and watch the documentary um but yeah i think that's gonna do it for us tonight um there's no pithy way to end this just take care of each other keep your social distancing wash your hands just do whatever you have to to take care of yourself we'll be uh uh, all things being equal should be back with another episode in a month from now and uh, we hope that we're all still around to hear it so Chris it's always it's always good to talk to you now and more than ever I think yeah this is uh, it's it's nice to be able to talk to people uh, when you're kind of isolated to your house so we'll kind of close this with uh, best wishes for everybody please stay safe uh, and watch some movies, find something that you love or something that you think you may love, sit down and just let it envelop you. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're going to do the same and we'll come back next month and talk about it. So see you next time. Absolutely. Take care.